0: So, as we read in Acts chapter sixteen, uh, the stage was set where uh, Paul and Silas, they were in Macedonia, and their job was to uh, preach to the Macedonians to start a church up there. And they arrived in Macedonia uh, to find that there really wasn't a formal synagogue. Uh, there was a meeting place of prayer down by the river. And that's where they met Lydia, and you know the 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 church started. Um, there, I think it was in Philippi, uh, and so things were going good. Um, you know, it was uh, encouraging, even though it, it was small beginnings. It was still encouraging, and then we read in starting in verse sixteen, and as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, brought <coughs> excuse me, and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I put the title of Expect the Unexpected for these verses because it always seems that when things are going well, there's always something to come in and mess things up. That's how it seems in our, in our earthly minds. Uh, when you're, especially when you're doing God's will, when you are doing something for the Lord. I can't tell you how many distractions I had while, making, while doing this sermon. Uh, well, you know, normally... Uh, You know, I can do many things throughout the day, but when it came to the sermon, it was just like there were so many different distractions. And Paul and Silas ran into something similar with the slave girl to where uh, she was very distracting, and it was more the, the spirit that was in her, or the spirits as the case may be. And Satan likes to do that. He likes to take our eyes off of Jesus. He likes to uh, distract us from our purpose of serving Christ. And you'll find that the more you serve Christ, a lot of times the more distractions, uh, the more temptations will come your way. They, they seem to be uh, sometimes very intense. Uh, and in this case, it became very intense God tells us to be prepared for trials because as those who follow him, uh, we will experience trials. In James, it says, "'Count it all joy, my brethren, "'when you meet trials of various kind, of various kinds, "'for you know that the testing of your faith "'produces steadfastness, "'and let steadfastness have its full effect, "'that you may be perfect and complete, "'lacking in nothing.'" And then in 1 Peter, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And really, this is kind of the theme of uh, this particular sermon, this particular study that I did. And I'm I'm sharing with you some things that I have been convicted of. here for a little while i am by no means victorious in any of this um you know especially i told janelle i said you know it was kind of funny doing this sermon experiencing the distractions and the frustrations and so forth and monitoring my responses to those um i was i i definitely didn't follow paul and silas's example We're told that Satan prowls about as a roaring lion. He's also a whisperer as well. Uh, he's a master of opportunity. So if he can't startle you and take your eyes off of Jesus by roaring at you, he will whisper in your ear. So there are different ways uh, that Satan likes to just distract you. Again, to take your eyes off Jesus. He can't cause you to sin. And he, can't, he doesn't have power over you. But again, he can whisper in your ear or he can distract you. And that's one of the the main things that he likes to do. I'm going to push that out of my way for just a minute. So the distractions, kind of wanted to touch on that point real quick. The distractions that Paul and Silas faced through this particular situation, uh, a slave girl. And, you know, I kind of chuckled. As I studied this part because it said, you know, Paul became greatly annoyed and you kind of get the impression that, you know, he just turned to her and was like, would you shut up? And in reality, uh, the Greek word for that is to be like seriously grieved, to be disturbed within his soul. Uh, And it was more the response to uh, how Satan was distracting people because as they would talk, she would start yelling out what she was saying was not wrong. But she was being very distracting. And it is kind of interesting, as you go through various trials, and God again was constantly reminding me of this, that he has a purpose as you go through these things. This is not by accident. It was not by accident that, you know, the slave girl happened upon them. I mean, they they weren't going through, Paul and Silas were not going through the streets with, you know, pomp and circumstance of, yes, we are Paul and Silas, and this is what we do. Rather, she happened to find them. Just happened. But really, God had a purpose for it. And one of the purposes, as we read through the story, kind of note how God uses the situation surrounding Paul and Silas to reach various people. And one of those people is the slave girl. So after she had followed them for many days, that was also kind of an interesting point. You know, Paul didn't immediately turn to the slave girl, rebuke the, the spirit, and just be done with it. I believe that Paul had to wait for God's prompting. He was grieved in his spirit because God was prompting him. You need to do something about this now. It is time to rebuke the spirit. So he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So... It's kind of an interesting thing. You don't really hear anything more about the slave girl. She was discarded at that point. She was of no use to them. She had no value. Kind of step back a little bit, focus on her for just a moment. Slave girl means she was brought from her home by the Romans, made a slave. You know, we're not told what things she was subjected to. Obviously... She was either because of where she came from or whatever, she got into uh, the occult uh, and that resulted in her becoming possessed. Her life is probably about as dark as you can get because of her physical situation but then also her spiritual situation. She was truly crying out uh, for relief, for release, uh, but really had no power in herself to do so, and it was God who turned to her and released her from the bondage that she was in. She was no longer worth anything to her earthly masters; she had been used up, but to Christ she had great value, and so we kind of leave her behind, and we assume that the eventually the church took her in. Um, because, again, she was discarded. So now we focus on Paul and Silas. They did this great thing, um, and their reward for it was to be dragged before the magistrates where those, their accusers said, and these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. Not really. They advocate customs that are not lawful, us, lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, the Romans had... You know, they, they were polytheistic. They had so many religions and so many gods that they had lost track of them all. And the crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. <laughs> Excuse me. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. Keep in mind kind of these, what Paul and Silas are going through. We're, we're setting the stage is what we're doing. They've just been unjustly accused. They've been pulled away from the work of God, unjustly accused. Uh, The crowd has gone insane. And as the worldly crowd often does, tears their clothes off. They are beaten severely, it says. And then they're dragged off to prison. Now, when you think of prisons, so... After they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And so having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So if you're familiar with history, you know what stocks are. Those are those wonderful things that lock your feet down into place. You can't move around. But note how it said the inner prison. Now, prisons back then were not what we know as prisons today. There was no TV, there was no running water, there was no showers. Uh, They didn't get three squares a day. It was a very dark place. And usually people who went there for one of two purposes, they were either awaiting trial, which could take years sometimes, or they were awaiting execution. Those were the only two reasons that you would really be sent to prison. And an inner prison meant that there was no light. It was the innermost part of the prison. And I labeled this the pit of despair. My voice is raspy enough. I might be able to pull that off. The pit of despair. Um, and really, that's what it was. It was a pit of despair. It was a place of sorrow, of pain, of suffering. Uh, there was, they weren't fed. If they got food, it was from outside sources, If they received any sort of comfort, it was from outside sources. Um, They were oftentimes abused. There was no humanity in prison. So it was a very, very dark place. Um, You definitely didn't want to go there. And so Paul and Silas went from doing God's glorious work out in the sunshine to this situation where they're now in the darkest hole in that part of the country. And really, once you were there... People lost sight of you. There was no getting out again. Uh, in fact, they made these inner prisons a lot of times underground, as a sign that you were removed from society and you were basically buried alive. There was no there was no hope of repeal. Excuse me. All right, so now that we've set the stage, and I've thoroughly depressed you, um, how would you react in this type of situation? So picture yourself as Paul or Silas. It's easier to picture yourself as Silas, uh, because we're not told a huge amount about him. Paul is this kind of, you know, marvel superhero of a Christian that, uh, you know, he can pretty much do anything. And so it's, it's harder to identify yourself with him. Now keep in mind, he was not a superhero, he was... A man just like you and I, so and he struggled with the same things that you and I do. but put yourself, let's say, in Silas's place. Uh, what would be your response? Uh, would you go through anger, despair, frustration? Uh, would you, God, why? Why did you allow this to happen? Uh, you know, would you get angry at Paul? Did you have to say something to the slave girl? Just you could have left her alone, like, dude, you know. Just next time, keep your mouth shut um, and those are natural fleshly responses, and unfortunately, I kind of fall into a lot of those. Um, but what would your response be and it you know let me back up a little bit and just say it's not necessarily a bad thing because I put on there you know why God it's not a bad thing to ask God you know God why <laughs> what's going on because we're told in scripture that Paul even prayed about his physical affirmity 3 times and it was not a Lord please take this away. Lord please take this away. Lord please take this away. Those were they were heart-wrenching prayers of God, why? I I need this please taken away from me. And God's response was, what? My grace is sufficient for you. My power will be showed forth in your weakness. And so He was answering Paul's question, this is why you're going through this. My grace is sufficient for you so that will get you through it and this is why you're going through what you're going through. So it is not necessarily a bad thing to ask why God as long as you listen for an answer, as long as you're truly seeking God and not just shaking your fist at him. This prison is kind of a good metaphor for troubles in life. A lot of times We get taken out of maybe an ideal situation and put into a not-so-great situation, even temporarily. I had a little note on there. Note the slave girl went from darkness to light spiritually, and Paul and Silas went from light to darkness physically, but not spiritually. They still had the light of Christ in them. So even though they were in the darkest hole, they still had the light of Christ. Cory Ten Boom says, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. So no matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, Jesus is right there with you no matter what. And he does have a plan. There is purpose to this. Um, this is not by accident. This is not by some random chance. God didn't go, ooh, I didn't pay attention there. There is purpose. There is a plan to all of this. All right, so the responses. You know, Paul and Silas didn't know the outcome beforehand. They didn't know that God was going to cause an earthquake. You know, in their minds, we're never going to get out of here again. This is it. This is the end of the line. And we're probably going to die a very horrible death in this place. Such was the case most of the time and they were fully aware of that. They were Jews after all, even though they were Roman citizens. They could pull out that Roman Citizen card, which they did later. Um, but still in that, you know, in that time, it, you could still disappear, and nobody would ever hear from you again, and nobody would care. So they were facing that possibility and they didn't know the outcome. They didn't know what was going to happen. <clears throat> In reality, there was one end. So if we, I'm going I'm to jump forward to verse 35 and 38 real quick, where, um, or excuse me, 35 through 38. <clears throat> now when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release these men. And the jailer reported to Paul and Paul said to them, "They've beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans." He pulls out his Roman card and have thrown us into prison. And now they are sending us away secretly. No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these things to the magistrates, and the magistrates were afraid because that they heard that Paul and Silas were indeed Romans. They weren't just your everyday run-of-the-mill slaves or you know uh, people who had been conquered. Uh, Which meant, side note, if you were a Roman, if you had Roman citizenship, that meant you had rights. Uh, If you were not a Roman citizen, you didn't have any rights. And so, you know, they could do anything to you. But with Roman citizenship, there were some sticky points. They had to be very careful with how they treated you. And they came and appealed to Paul and Silas when they brought them out. And they kept begging them to leave the city. And Paul and Silas went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them, and then departed the city. So that was the end. That's that's what happened at the end. And you could surmise that maybe Paul and Silas, if they had conferred amongst themselves, saying, you know, we are Roman citizens, and, you know, next time we see the jailer, I'm going to pull out my Roman citizenship card, and we should get at least a trial. Not guaranteed, but, you know, there's that possibility. So... There is that end. Now let's explore two different roads. So, two different responses. So you have your first response. Let's say Paul and Silas, they got arrested, they got beaten, um, and they began to moan and complain. They They were angry and frustrated. They got locked away in prison, and it was just, they let it be known that they were not happy campers. Next morning, they were released, they were asked to leave the city, they did. Let's put it into personal application. Going through a trial, your responses are one of two things. You can either moan and complain, gripe, grumble, have a bad attitude. Your family is going to see how you handle stress and how you handle trials, and they will take note, that's how you handle trials. People around you will note That's how Christians handle trials. That's what faith looks like. And then, you know, the end result is reached. Option two, response two, is to praise and trust Christ with what you're going through. You're able to give God glory. You're able to rest in him. It's not easy. And you might struggle with things and voice those struggles. But at the same time, you're visibly turning your eyes to Christ. Your family sees how you respond to trials and they say, that's how you respond to trials. People around you say, okay, well that's how Christians go through trials. That's what faith looks like. And then of course the end result is achieved. So really you have the end result, let's say is the same, but two ways to get there. Which which direction are you going to take? And you'll note that it's not just you navigating these waters by yourself. It's not just, oh, it only affects me. It's a funny thing about sin. It, it never just affects one person. It's like a pebble thrown into a pond. It, it does have ripple effects. Even in just how you react to people. And I've noticed in my own life that if I'm not being as active with Christ as I should be, that a lot of times I will miss opportunities to share Christ. I'll come into a situation and it'll be, oh, I need to share Christ, but I feel so unprepared and I just I have this really odd feeling of, and you know, God can use anything. And don't let that, you know, be an excuse. Well, I'm not prepared, so. Um, but I've noticed the differences of when I don't spend quality time with the Lord, and I just kind of casual Christian my way through, my responses are much different to situations, to stresses, to trials, and even to sharing the gospel than it is if I'm actively walking with Christ. I'm better equipped. I have my armor on at that point, and it really, in reality, that's how it works. We are in the middle of a battle constantly, and so. When the enemy engages, is your bow, is your armor on? If it's not, you've got to scramble for it. It means you're unprepared, and invariably, you respond to situations in not so great ways because of that. <clears throat> so we come to verse twenty-five. <laughs> About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Again, Paul and Silas didn't know that was going to happen. Their responses, though, were to pray and praise. Note that. The prisoners were listening to them. Now, Paul and Silas were, the, were in the innermost parts. They were in the, a very dark, dank, nasty place. And everybody else were in the outer cells, usually. Also note that the jailer was listening to them because of his response later on. Now, he doesn't live inside the prison. He's, he's got his quarters like right outside the prison. What is my point in bringing all of that up? Paul and Silas were doing this loudly. They were being vocal. They were not just, you know, conferring amongst themselves or, you know, silent prayers, et cetera. They were praying out loud. We don't know what they were praying. In that situation, I would have been, Lord Jesus, give me strength. Help me through this time. My back is killing me, (laughs) Lord. And the prisoners are seeing what... Real life faith looks like. Paul and Silas are in with them, and they're used to hearing screams and moans and all sorts of nastiness. And this is very different. Light has entered a very dark place spiritually. And so they were praying. Paul and Silas were praying aloud. And I've been convicted of this a lot of times. Is I, you know, I pray silently around my family or you know whatever. And, And God is like, you know what? Let them know what you're thinking. Let them know that you're praying to me about this particular situation. So I've started doing that. I've started praising aloud. If somebody's struggling with something, Lord, we lift up, you know, so and so. We hear about, you know, a prayer request over text or whatever we go to immediate prayer. My response is to do so quietly, but God has been convicting me to do so aloud so my family sees it. And the same goes with praising. When something good happens out loud, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for doing that for us. Or, you know, thank you for healing that person or or whatever the case may be. And you'll note something too as you sing praises. It lifts your eyes off yourself. It lifts my eyes off myself. And onto Jesus. I'm no longer consumed by myself and by my situation. I then become consumed with Christ. One of my favorite hymns, you know, turn your eyes to Jesus. You know, when you look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When you're fixed on him, when you turn your eyes and praise in praise and prayer, things, your situation may not change. Note how it says about midnight. Paul and Silas were not thrown in jail at midnight. They were thrown in jail much earlier in the day. Their trial, their beating, etc. all happened earlier in the day. They were on their way to prayer when that happened. We don't know what time exactly, but it was certainly not at midnight. So they were in there for at least several hours, again, with no hope of ever getting out. So when they began to praise in prayer, it lasted for several hours. It wasn't an immediate, God was like, all right, you're praying and praising, all right, earthquake happened, boom. They had to go through that process for a period of time. I noted, praising comes from a life devoted to Christ, and Paul and Silas were not casual Christians. It's uh, very easy to be a casual Christian, to not be serious about your faith. I I read a a devotional by Spurgeon on uh, Romans 11.36 the other day. Uh, Romans 11.36 is, For from him and through him and to him are all things... And this is the part he focuses on. To him be glory forever. Amen. And Spurgeon says, to whom be glory forever. This should be the single desire of the Christian. All other wishes must be subservient and tributary to this one. The Christian may wish for prosperity in his business, but only so far as it may help him to promote this. To him be glory forever. He may desire to attain more gifts and more graces, but it should only be that to him be glory forever. You are not acting as you ought when you do, excuse me, you are not acting as you ought to do when you are moved by any other motive than a single eye to your Lord's glory. As a Christian, you are of God and through God. Then live to God. Let nothing ever set your heart beating so mightily as to love him. Let this ambition fire your soul be this the foundation of every enterprise upon which you enter. In this, your sustaining motive, wherever your zeal, will grow chill. Make God your only object. Depend upon it. Where self begins, sorrow begins. But if God be my supreme delight and only object, to me it is equal whether love ordain my life or death, appoint me ease or pain. In other words, it doesn't matter what this life brings me. If God is my focus, if God is my delight, then I am I, content. The other song I like to sing is um, You Are My All-in-All. All. Uh, and I've pondered many times about that scripture. Lord, what does that mean? Uh, that hymn, <laughs> excuse me, based upon the scripture, Jesus is our all-in-all. All. What does that mean? He satisfies, he is everything we need at all times in any situation. He is all we need he will fill us all up with himself because he is all we need. If we have him, we lack nothing. And this was what spurred the praises uh, of Paul and Silas. They had Christ and they lacked nothing because of it. To be fully devoted to prayer and talking with Jesus uh, definitely requires effort. But it's, it's that relationship aspect that we have with God. We read his word, he speaks to us through his word, we sing his praises, prayer is important, and talking to him throughout the day is important. Having that active relationship with Christ uh, is how you are like Paul and Silas. Again, they, they were just regular men. Um, you know, Paul was an apostle called by God, but he was still just a regular man. He, he had no superhuman strength. It was anything he had, it was because of what God gave him in order to complete a work. And you'll note, if you're familiar with Acts, Paul didn't, or God didn't always rescue Paul. God didn't always rescue Peter. There were times God miraculously rescued the apostles uh, and saints out of dire situations. And then other times, they perished in those situations. And the reason God rescued Paul and Silas at this particular time is he was not done with them. And God was actually reaching the slave girl, the prisoners, the jailer, and you'll find later on, the jailer's family. God had a bigger agenda at work. And if we get so focused sometimes on our situations, we don't often... We don't let God show us the bigger picture. And there are times it's God, you know, why? And the second part of this is trusting Christ. Resting in him. And letting go of our expectations that we have. A lot of times we, we respond to situations negatively because we have expectations of how we think something should be, how we think a situation should be. And it doesn't go that way, and so we respond negatively. At least that's what I found in my life. And a lot of the, the way around that is to surrender the situation to Christ and say, you know what, Lord, I don't have control of this situation. You know, I can't control the frustrations and things that come my way. But I can turn them over to you, and I can respond with your joy, with your love, your grace. I do find myself saying, I'll be glad when this day is over and it's the weekend, or, you know, such and such day is reached. I'll be glad when the semester's over, I'm tired. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but at the same time, it kind of shows that, you know what? I'm not surrendering the moment to Christ. I'm living more in kind of chasing the end of the rainbow. In a sense, looking for something that's always going to satisfy me better than what I'm currently going through right now. You can certainly look forward to what God has for you. But again, don't look for the end of the rainbow. It's it's a false false assumption, a a false pursuit. Learn how to be content in the moment with whatever God has you in. Something else God has... uh, (laughs) kinda showed me because there are times where it's like, okay, this is only temporary, we can get through this. And, you know, be it a health situation or whatever. And then if you've ever had a, a head cold that just seems to go on forever, you get you start it, oh man, I got it. You kind of fight your way through it. And usually about three quarters of the way through you're like, is this ever going to end? And then, you know, of course, it eventually goes away. But I, I, I felt God had, he posed the question to me one time, well, what if it doesn't end? What if it doesn't go away? What if your situation doesn't get better? What if this is the rest of your life? Then what? Will you be joyful? You know what, you're looking forward to the end of this right now. But what if, what if there is no end to this? In Paul and Silas' situation, they could look forward to the end of the day. Okay, if we can just get through tonight, I am pulling out my Romans' citizenship card, and these guys are going down, and we're getting out of here. But what if that didn't happen? What if they were stuck there forever? What if nobody came? And so sometimes you, you, you might be faced with that type of situation. What if? Will you still be joyful? Will you still be able to praise me? God says. Will you still be able to seek Christ? Will you still be able to shine his light and share his love? This is where, in a sense, the rubber meets the road. This is where all you've learned about faith gets put into, into painful practice. Uh, where you've read the textbook... And now it's time to get out and actually do the work. And sometimes we get to see God's mighty hand. God can speak in an earthquake, as in Paul and Silas' situation. And, you know, we've seen God speak in earthquakes in the sense of, you know, maybe not literal earthquakes, because we have those here, and, you know, Um, but earthquakes in the sense where God steps in, and you actually see God step in and go, okay, okay enough, and this is the way it's going to be, and your situation is maybe greatly improved. Sometimes you get to see that, and that's awesome. That is awesome to see God's mighty hand at work. But then there are times where God doesn't speak in an earthquake. Uh, If you remember the story in 1 Kings with Elijah, where Elijah was running After doing a mighty work for God, Elijah was running from Jezebel, because she was gonna kill him. Uh, And you know, here's a mighty prophet of God, and he's running from Jezebel. And he gets to a a hidden, secluded place, and God goes, What are you doing here? He says, Well, I'm running. And in that situation, there was an earthquake and a fire and a great wind. Some mighty things that happened. The, the, The rocks shook and were rent. And after each time, it said, but God was not in the earthquake and in the wind, and he was not in the fire. Those were situational, those were circumstances and things that just, life. And then it says, and after the fire, one translation says, the sound of a low whisper or a still small voice. And it says, then Elijah covered his head because he realized God was here and God was talking. Sometimes you, you do have to listen for a still small voice. Sometimes the earthquake and the fire and so forth are life, and you, you do have to listen very intently for God. And sometimes we don't get to see the purpose of what we're going through until eternity. But this is where, again, trust comes in. This is where you have to trust Jesus. You have to say, Lord, I don't understand what's going on. And I've asked you many, many times, Lord, why this is happening. I haven't had a response yet. No audible voice. Nothing obvious that says, okay, this is why you're going through what you're going through. God hasn't given me a script. And so, Lord, I have to trust you that you know what you're doing. That you will get us through whatever we're going through whatever I'm going through, that you will give me the strength, you will give me the joy as I seek you. And Lord, my prayer is that I'm able to share your love with those around me because people are watching. My family is watching. Those around me are watching. It is an amazing thing. The You might not think that your coworkers... Um, uh, <laughs> I have students in the classroom, and I don't start the semester by saying I'm a Christian. It happens in conversation and so forth, but it spreads like wildfire throughout the class. They know I follow Jesus. I'm closely scrutinized. So too, those you work with, those you're around A lot of times, you don't have to say anything. They sense that there is something different about you. And so, your responses, they're being watched. But more importantly, your responses are how it affects you directly. And it's very hard sometimes to, again, surrender and trust Christ, to turn your eyes to him and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. God gave us an example of prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This is the um, Lord's prayers. It's entitled, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Start off with praise. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A surrendering. God, you are in control. I don't have control. I give you today, I give you tomorrow, and I give you yesterday. Give us this day our daily bread, bare necessities, where you are required to go to God even for the bare necessities, and this is bread physically, but also bread spiritually. God, give me food from your word today. When you read his word, pray, God, show me what you want me to know, what you want me to hear. Forgive, forgive us of our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Father, forgive me. I have fouled up today, and help me to forgive others as you have forgiven me. And lead us not into temptation. And this is the part I want to hit: lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is an important part of the prayer. And I've come to realize that, Lord, protect me from temptation. And from evilness, it is so easy for me to become distracted and to take my eyes off of you. Protect me from temptation. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And end in praise. And so, learning to pray. For those who don't know him, the first step is surrendering to him. God, I need you. I'm a sinner. I can't do this on my own. I need Jesus. First step. It's, it's that step of faith, of trusting Jesus. And that is your first step. What is the Chinese proverb? Uh, you know, the, the journey of a million miles starts with your first step. Um, it's really that way. You constantly, for those who know Christ, learn how to trust him Every step of the way. And Isaac prayed that this morning. Daily. Lord, help us daily as we walk with you. Moment by moment. God, I need you. And that's that hymn, I need thee. I need thee every hour. Oh, how I need thee. So, my encouragement for you all this week Uh, comes from Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, the title... Of this, of this study, praise and prayer during your darkest hour. Uh, you know, Janelle was like, that's kind of a depressing title. And I was like, well, it's like a psalm. A lot of the psalms start off kind of, kind of depressing because it's real life. They're walking you through what real life is like. And then at the end of the psalm, it's, thank you, God. I praise your name. And so we end again with praise. Keep in mind that God does have control of every situation and we can praise him no matter what because we belong to him and he is with us every moment of every day.